Okay. Okay, yot, which is arms, closed hand, associated with the word hand, work, throw, and worship. Your hands made me for your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your word. I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. May your unfailing love be my comfort according to your promise to your servant. Let your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be put to shame for wrongdoing me without cause, but I will meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, those who understand your statutes. May my heart be blameless towards your decrees, that I may not be put to shame. Okay. All right. We uh, Jim is trying a different seat today to see if he can you can hear better with him there, because apparently people have not been able to hear anything that's said. And so he's sitting there instead of there. So if it sounds better, let me know. If it doesn't, you know, either way, but... Uh, uh, just uh we want you know jim reads one version of the bible i read another and that gives us a little bit of a perspective and sometimes you can read 10 different versions of bibles and come to 10 different uh analysis because uh they can be so different but uh it's good to have at least a couple of versions to hear what's going on and to maybe uh determine why things are translated one way or another um we've got a few prayer requests <clears throat> excuse me Jan Bo, I mentioned her last week, this, today I think it was, might have been yesterday, Mike sent me an email and uh, he, he said that she is off in an ambulance. She was taken away and uh, uh, she had uh, some deep vein thrombosis and some other issues that uh, he, he, very, uh, you know, concerning for him. And uh, so we want to have her in prayer. And then Seth, my friend out in, uh, he's moving very soon to a new state, but uh, he, his cousin's daughter was sent home from college for sickness. They don't know what it is, but uh, he asked for prayer for her. And then I heard from Lothar today. He's in a hospital, and they're starting some new pain treatments for him. But today, he didn't have any, and he said it was the best he's felt in quite a while. He's very happy about that, but he's waiting to see uh, uh, what it'll be like when they get him onto some pain medicines. Right. And uh, then Mark and Becky in Colorado asked for continued prayers as well. And so we'll go ahead and have them in prayer. And, you know, we'll do that right now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to uh, pray for these people and anybody else that I've forgotten to mention. Lots of emails throughout the week, and uh, we have prayer lists that are sent to me as well. And uh, unless, you know, they ask to specifically be mentioned, I try not to do that, but you know who they are. And so we lift them up, all the individuals that are in our lives and our hearts and our families that uh, have needs that you would... Uh, just search us out and, and uh, know that we care about these things and that we're lifting them up to you in our minds, in our hearts, and also uh, audibly. And Lord, we uh, just ask that you would bless this time, this, uh, this uh, little adventure into the book of Galatians once again tonight. And we just, what a great book it is. What good doctrine we get from the hand of Paul. And we just pray that this will be handled properly and that it will be something that will build others up and understand the... Uh, the uh, fault of going back to the law when we already have the fulfillment of the wonderful things that Christ did for us and uh, the grace that was bestowed upon us. So help us to cling to the grace and to uh, uh, not fall back on that which is already done and unprofitable for our walk with you. And Lord, we certainly just thank you for all the good blessings of this life, for the 
big rain we got just a few minutes ago and the safety of people arriving here without any accidents. It's just, you're very kind to us, Lord. So we thank you, we love you, we praise you, and we do all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's see, we got this day in Christian history. Today, that's 13, so that means it's what, the 10th today. And I'm trying to remember, it is September, is that right? Yes, okay. Tomorrow is September 11th. So, oh, yeah, September 11th tomorrow. We'll have a memory, a memorial about that, I'm sure, around. I saw that, that New Jersey is in the process of taking flags down because they don't want people to be offended on 9-11, which is so stupid. But there you go. That's the way things are in the world today. September 10th. Do you know what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about? Well, I'd like to see what they have to say about this because, yes, we do. In AD 32, the Feast of Tabernacles would begin on September 10th. Jesus, like every faithful Jewish man, would make the journey to Jerusalem to attend the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, the feast was the most popular of the three annual feasts requiring attendance in Jerusalem of every Jewish male. The purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles was to remind the Jewish people of God's blessings on them during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, during which God had been present in their midst in the tabernacle. There in the wilderness, he had provided them water from a rock, when they were thirsty, and manna from heaven when they were hungry. <clears throat> As an annual reminder of God's provision in the wilderness, every Jewish family was to build a small booth out of tree boughs and palm branches and live in it during the seven days of the feast. Jesus' anticipated trip to Jerusalem was filled with absurdities. For the past months, Jesus had been spending his time in Galilee because the Jews of Jerusalem and Judea were seeking to kill him. Now that the time had come for the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus was expected to go to Jerusalem, but he had to be careful how he went, lest he be murdered before God's appointed time for his death on the cross. The instruction for observance of the Feast of Tabernacles was that every man in Israel must appear before the Sovereign Lord. Yet here, the Sovereign Lord, Jesus, was personally present, but many in Israel were trying to kill him. Indeed, just a few months later, they would crucify their Sovereign Lord. In the first chapter of his gospel, the Apostle John used a verb related to the Greek word for tabernacle to introduce Jesus. This is John 1.14. I'm sure they're going to cite here. 12. What's that? 112. Okay, 12. whatever. Dwell. Yeah, dwell. Okay, yeah. So I, I'm pretty sure I'm right on the verse, 114, but it's dwell, which is literally to tabernacle. Um, it was, uh, where was I now? In the first chapter of his gospel, uh, the word became flesh and literally tabernacled among us. In other words, just as God had been present in the midst of his people in the Old Testament tabernacle in the wilderness and later in the temple, God was now present in Jesus. The Jews were seeking to kill Jesus at the feast of which he was the fulfillment. There you go, fulfillment. I'm glad they at least got that part right because they do have some errors in here. The Jews were seeking to kill Jesus at the feast of which he was the fulfillment. He was the tabernacle of God with men. A daily highlight of each of the feast's seven days was the water-drawing ceremony. At daybreak, priests went from the temple, temple to the Pool of Siloam. There they filled a golden pitcher with water and carried it back to the temple. As they approached the south side of the temple, trumpets sounded three times. The priests bearing the pitcher then proceeded around the altar while the choir sang the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 through 118. When the choir reached the opening words of Psalm 118, every male shouted with them three times, Give thanks to the Lord. Then as the chosen priest mounted the altar, he poured the wine and water offerings into the two silver bowls. As he poured, the choir, as he poured, the choir sang the words of Psalm 118. 
the stone rejected by the builders has now become the chief cornerstone. On the seventh day of the feast, the priests circled the altar not once, but seven times. Of this particular Feast of Tabernacles, John records on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, If you are thirsty, come to me. If you believe in me, come and drink. For the scriptures declare that rivers of living water will flow out from within. Jesus used living water to refer to the Holy Spirit who would be poured out on believers that after he had ascended into glory. Jesus, the stone rejected by the builders, was the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. Have you come to Jesus and drunk the living water of his Spirit? The Spirit indwells all those who believe in Jesus, and the water that he offers satisfies their deepest longings. And from Isaiah 44, For I will give you abundant water to quench your thirst and to moisten your parched fields, and I will pour out my Spirit and my blessings on your children. So they got that right, at least, that the Feast of Tabernacle, along with all of the Feasts of the Lord, is fulfilled. It's done. It's over. The Law of Moses is complete, and we no longer need to observe any of those things. But they did get some errors in there, so what I would suggest is that you rush to your computer and type in Superior Word on uh, YouTube, and it'll come up with uh, uh, the channel. Then go to Leviticus playlist, and then you can scroll down to uh, Leviticus 23, the Feast of Tabernacles, and then there's a couple other times that tabernacles are mentioned, and so there's kind of a picture that's being developed from Exodus all the way through the book of Numbers. Can we help you, ma'am? Oh, my mother's here. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't see that. I didn't notice that was you, so <clears throat> good, good, good to have you. Um, we are in the book of Galatians now. This is uh, Galatians chapter 3. And so we're burning right through the book, we are. and we're in verse 316. So, He's going to take a ball and hit you, and you'll fall in the pool one of these days. That may happen. I, I tell you what. Well, I noticed it was must have been really hot when you got here today, because you were just soaking wet when you walked in. Oh, it poured. It literally was just, it was a Malaysian monsoon once again. We've had several of those in the past couple weeks, but uh, really wonderful rain we had here. All right, we're in 316. Okay. Backing up to 15, 15, beginning of the paragraph, Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been truly established, so it is in this case. 16. The, promise, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seed, meaning many people, but, and you and your seed, meaning, I think, meaning one person, which is Christ. Okay, this is way different once again. Last week they had a difference. This one is, well, now to Abraham and his seed, capital seed, were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So there you go with that. We'll see. Uh, comment, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The words of Paul in this verse are the subject of an almost countless number of pages of analysis, speculation, and frustration. If one is truly concerned about the complete meaning of what is being discussed, referring to many of those commentaries is a must. And uh, just so you know, I say it from time to time, but I usually pretty much exclusively use biblehub.com, B-I-B-L-E-H-U-B.com, okay? And when you go there, type in any verse that you want to look at in the Bible, and just type in, say, John 3.16, and then usually to bring you up to the first page, which is parallel, and it'll give you 20, 25, 30, depending on uh, where you are in the Bible, different translations, so you can compare the different translations. 
And then if you want the commentary, just click on the link that says commentary and you'll get really the finest scholars of the past many hundreds of years. You'll get people that were very well uh, educated in both Greek and Hebrew. But once again, that doesn't mean that they know what they're talking about just because they speak Hebrew and Greek or whatever. They, you know, they can translate the Bible. Just because somebody can do that doesn't mean they're a specialist. And that's something you need to be careful of. And you'll see that even in their commentaries. John Gill might come to exactly the opposite conclusion of Charles Ellicott. And they both are trained in the Hebrew and the Greek. So be careful with that. But you'll get their analysis and there's pages and pages of them. And then about uh, towards the top of the page, you'll get many, many other names of people that are not on the main commentary page. And you can click on their names. For example, John Lang is there, but you have to click on his name in that section, Lang. And it'll take you to John Lang's commentary. The same is true with several, quite a few others, Darby and go on and on, just many, many names. But the main page is uh, a good rounded bunch of scholars. And uh, they go from about the 1600s maybe to the early uh, or late 1800s is about the time frames that they're there. But they cite scholars going all the way back to the very beginning. Some of them, John Gill cites a lot of Jewish scholars, but you'll get a good rounded thing there. If you want to read the Hebrew, they have a click on the the link that says Hebrew, and you can see all the Hebrew, each word, or Greek, you know, if you're in the New Testament. And uh, then there are other things as well. They've got, you know, sermons, if you want to take sermon material, which I never look at that. You know, there's all kinds of other links you could go to, but the main ones are the parallel, the, uh, the either Hebrew or Greek, and the commentaries. Those are the main ones that I will focus on. And then I got some other commentaries at the house, um, Wycliffe uh, commentary and et cetera, which I might refer to once in a while. But um, uh, it's a kind of a good thing to be able to understand, uh, get a well-grounded uh, view of different commentaries, especially on a verse like this, which can be very complicated. And if you just pick one guy that you like, you may be making a complete uh, incorrect analysis based on what he is saying. So you want to get at least two, three, or ten different commentaries and read them, and then you'll have a much more rounded idea of what's going on. But <clears throat> first, Paul begins with, now to Abraham and his seed, capital S, were the promises made. It is already known that the promise was made to Abraham. That was Genesis. Anybody? The promise was made to Abraham. 15, 15 verse 6. Okay, just one. Just keeping you awake, Burke. Um, so uh, let's see here. Um, it was made to Abraham. However, this says promises. The Bible reveals that the promise was reiterated to him on several occasions. Therefore, the plural is used here. Further, it says that the promises were made to his seed. Therefore, the promises were made to more than just Abraham. The word in the New King James Version is capitalized as seed, capitalized, because they believe, the, they believe that Paul is explaining the seed as Christ, the person. But this becomes problematic. Paul next says that he does not say and to seeds as of many, but as of one. This becomes rather difficult because though it is true that the word for seed is singular, it always involves a multitude within the singular. In other words, when speaking of the seed of Abraham, it's referring to many people. The seed of Abraham is all of the Jewish people. It's the Gentiles who grafted in, etc. So it's like the word from the Shema, you know, Shema Yisrael, El, uh, Elo, uh, Yehovah Eloheinu, Yehovah Echad. And the word at the end, Echad, can mean many, even though it's one. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But 
the word in itself can be a plurality within a singularity. In other words, you have a cluster of grapes. You would say that is a cluster of grapes, one, but there are many grapes. Or you can say the people of Israel. Well, there's a lot of people of Israel. So you've got a singular, but it's there's a plurality within it. So when it says the Lord or God, the Lord is one, it can mean that God is more than just a monad. He is, in fact, a trinity or whatever. You know, at the time, they didn't know. In the New Testament, we know that it's a trinity. But uh, so you got to be careful when you're evaluating things like that and just to not suddenly say, oh, well, this is because. If it had said uh, Shema Yisrael, Yehovah Eloheinu, Yehovah Yahid, that is one and only one. It doesn't say that. It says Echad. And so uh, the same idea is going on here. I'll read it again. Paul says, states that he does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one. This becomes rather difficult because though it is true that the word for seed is singular, it always involves a multitude within the singular. So now you understand what I was saying. In other words, when speaking of the seed of Abraham, it is referring to many people. The singular is used for the whole. Whether in Hebrew or Greek, the same truth is seen. In Greek, Paul says sperma, which is seed, instead of spermata, seeds. But sperma still includes a corporate whole who issue from one. What is often inferred is that Paul is saying that this word is referring to Christ the person and that this was justifiable when speaking to non-Jewish Galatians. Or it was acceptable based on rabbinical ways of analyzing scripture. A third option is that this is speaking of Christ, the singular person, as spiritually representing a collective whole. For example, in Matthew 2.15, Christ is used as a fulfilled type of the collective body of Israel. Let me take you there just so that we can see what I, because I don't remember what I said. Matthew 2.15, mm -hmm. I typed that how long ago, so um, I don't really remember the point I was making, but I made it, and so I want to make sure that we go there. Matthew 2, where are we? And then, oh, there it is right there. 2 and 15 says, um, oh yeah, absolutely. I'll go to 14. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed from for Egypt. And there was until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, out of Egypt, I called my son. So you have my son, Egypt, which is multitude, and Christ is the fulfillment of that. So there you go. Christ is used as a fulfilled type of the collective body of Israel. But these are just simple ways of dismissing what is not at all obvious. If the word seed consistently means a corporate whole when speaking of offspring, then that is how it should be taken. Does this mean that Paul is wrong? Of course not. It must be understood that Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Therefore, the seed is speaking of a certain section of his offspring. The promises were repeated to only one of them. For example, Isaac received the promise. After this, next son, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob received the promise, and so on. Thus, the use of seed and promises is speaking of a corporate whole, not of the person of Christ. However, this corporate whole is one in Christ. It is not speaking of Christ the individual, but of Christ the body of believers. This is made explicit later in this same chapter. To give the whole thought, the New King James Version says, he does not say and to seeds, plural, as of many, 
but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. In this, they have made the supposition that the seed is Christ. They capitalize seed, and they use the pronoun who to translate the Greek word hos. But your version, when you read it, said which. It didn't say who, right? Remember? It originally said who. I, oh, I oh, you changed it to I which. Okay, to well then, there you go. The supposition, however, is incorrect. The word hos can have various meanings, such as who, which, what, that, and so on. Translations which read something like, and to thy seed, which is Christ, that's Young's literal translation, convey the proper meaning. It is the corporate body in Christ to whom the promises were made. The promise does not include Ishmael, for example, even though he was a descendant of Abraham. Everybody see that? He's descendant of Abraham, but he is not the seed of Abraham that's being referred to in this particular concept right here. All right? The promise does not include Jacob's brother named uh, Esau. Esau, although he said Randy, although... Oh, red. Okay. I thought you said Randy. No, it's not Randy. It is red. Yes. Uh, the promise does not include Esau, although the same is true with him. All right. However, it does include any and all who have called on Christ and who are now adopted into the family of Abraham by faith, being now in Christ. Okay. So that's the seed. Everybody's seeing this? The Geneva Bible rightly comments that, here's what he says, or the Geneva Bible, they say, Paul does not speak of Christ's person, but of two peoples who grew together in one, in Christ. Both Jew and Gentile alike are the seed of Abraham to whom the promises were made. This conveys the whole point of Paul's letter to the Galatians. It is not those who are dependent on the law, meaning observant Jews, to whom the promises were made by any way, shape, or form. This is why Galatians is dealing with this specific issue, and you have to be careful with verses like this, okay? But to any and all, like Abraham, who take God at his word and demonstrate faith in him. It is faith. Paul keeps drumming this into our heads, even with a very complicated verse like this. And as I said, I guarantee you, if you went to all of the commentaries that I just told you to on Bible Hub, First, there would be, let's see, one, two, three, four, maybe five, six, seven, maybe nine on the main page, and then you could click on all of the other commentators. There might be another 10 or 12 that are not on the main page. Adam Clark and John Lang and uh, Kylan DeLeach is there, but it's a different one up here. Um, uh, so you might have, we'll say, 15 commentaries, and if you were to read them all, you'll probably get about 12 different concepts, maybe not that many. You might get five or six, but then you have to decide who is right and why. Well, you have to take the whole book of Galatians in context, and you have to take the whole Bible in context. And so uh, you, be careful when you're reading your favorite scholar or watching your favorite prophecy update teacher or anything like that, because we make in our minds these errors in thinking. They're called uh, category mistakes, or they're called fallacies. Category mistake is uh, placing one thing in another area. That's one fallacy. But a fallacy is any type of incorrect thinking. And so you, you don't want to say, well, this guy was trained at Oxford, and he speaks perfect Hebrew and Greek. So what? If he doesn't know his Bible, knowing perfect Hebrew and Greek, you can read Homer, and you can read uh, Milton, not Milton, Homer, and some of the, the Iliad. Big deal. I mean, that doesn't mean you're a scholar in the Bible. Okay, so you have to be careful with those type of things. And even somebody that does very special word studies only, like Vincent's word studies of the New Testament, or the Haw Theological Word Book of the Old Testament, they will make errors. 
And so don't just trust what they're saying. Check it and then go out and do your own study on it. If you're doing, you know, when I'm doing a sermon, I'll do a word study on each new word that's in there or each word that hasn't been used in a long time. And, you know, I'll do that all day on Monday when I'm doing the sermon typing. And sometimes I will pull out the Haw book. I, you know, usually I can do it with what's on the Internet, but sometimes I can't. I have to pull out the Haw book and I'll, I'll start looking through it. And I'll do a study on a word. Sometimes I'll spend an entire hour on one word to try to figure out what is going on in that. And if I just take their recommendation only, I may have a problem there because they have given their analysis as best they can, but come to find out this person has come to this analysis. Or you might turn to the parallel Bibles because you're reading all of the commentaries on the words, but Robert Young's doesn't really give you uh, an analysis of the words unless you have his... Um, concordance with you, which I do have a copy of it, but you're reading the parallels and you see that Robert Young has translated it different than all other 25 translations. And then you say, what's going on? And so if you don't have a copy of Robert Young's, then what you need to do is you need to get on the phone to Sergio and say, Sergio, I've got this word that's translated this way by 27 different people and Robert Young's didn't do it that way. And Sergio will say, oh, well, and then we'll have a talk about it. And he may get Rhoda involved in it. And the next thing you know, I've wasted an hour on all these other things because Young's was right, and I don't know why it was right, but it's just confirmed with them. So be careful when you are reading things and when you just assume that sounds right, because one argument may lead to another that actually is more correct or, you know, it shows that that's actually false. Be careful, but, you know, check everything out as best as you can. And in the end, you know, the Lord appreciates, I'm sure, all of the study you do, but Bad doctrine is, and I hate to tell people this because I'm one of them, bad doctrine is sin. So if I make a, an analysis which is incorrect in a sermon, I'm sinning because I'm leading people down the wrong path, even if it's just one word. One word can lead to an entirely different conclusion about an analysis of a passage, as we saw with the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah has a completely different ending at the superior word than any other church that, or I'm not talking about church, any other translation that I've ever read. And it was based on one word. It hinged on that. And when I realized that that word meant what it did, I went around and I looked at the entire fourth chapter. And sure enough, if you remember the sermon, if not, go watch the Jonah series. And when you get to Jonah chapter four, watch that and you'll say, well, that's different. So there you go. I, and, and that's either right or wrong. I'm not saying that I'm right in that. I'm saying that that was where I fell. I, and I actually stood up there and I said, I want you to know before I give this sermon, I'm certain this is correct. I wouldn't say it otherwise, but I want you to know that you need to make sure you check this out because what I'm going to present is not what you've seen in any other translation of the Bible ever. Okay. And if I'm wrong, bad doctrine is sin. And I don't want to do that. So keep that in mind and always check, check everything. Don't just get starstruck by a certain personality and assume that that person is correct. Life application. It is a shame that people get caught up in a single translation of the Bible. Here we have two right here. We could have another 20 that we'd read and we'd see differences in them. And some people will say, well, I know that mine is inspired by God and none other is. And I can tell you the people that make that claim about that particular translation, they'll know what they're talking about. Because every single passage that I do on Monday for sermon typing and every morning for um, uh, my commentary typing, I check the errors in that particular version and I'm up to thousands. It is a marginal translation at best. And I'm talking about real errors. I'm not talking about just little things. So uh, always 
don't assume that just because somebody tells you something is true that it is. You have to stand approved or disapproved before the Lord on your own. Okay, um, translation of the Bible. In doing so, there's always the chance that the rendering is incorrect. In the case of this verse, a simple capitalization and the use of one incorrect pronoun can bring out an entirely different meaning than that which is intended. This, that misunderstanding will not necessarily lead to some type of heresy, but it may lead to confusion when someone is approached with the original meaning of the word translated as seed. Is it capital C, Jesus? Is it small seed? Is it speaking of, what is it speaking of, okay? In this inability to properly explain what is being said, a perceived inaccuracy is then found in the Bible. Thus, it can give ammo to deniers of the Bible to further challenge its inspiration. Doctrine does matter. Detailed study of the word is important. And when they find these supposed contradictions in the Bible, it's not because the Bible is an error. It's because man who has been translating God's word is an error. We're fallible. None of us is going to come up with the perfect translation. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that I like about Young's translation, John Darby has a good one too. They're very good translations. Is because they're one person that is translating the Bible. Okay, and so they're going to be more consistent with certain words throughout the Bible. But then there's a problem with that because you've got a person that may have a presupposition about certain things in the Bible. And so there are other translations which are more general will lead you down a certain path. So you have to be careful with that. When you're looking at a Bible that has been translated by, we'll just take the King James Version because, you know, people know about that. They had about 50 people that translated the King James Version. And not all 50 were there for Genesis chapter 1. Okay, that's not how a Bible translation committee works. You got 50 people and you say, okay, you seven are going to do uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy or whatever. And you seven are going to do, and they'll pick the Bible and they'll say, okay, so you got these different translational committees. And what is your specialty? Are you better in Hebrew or are you better in Greek? Well, I'm better in Greek. Okay, well, then you're going to do this part of the New Testament. But we want you to consult with the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So they will have that kind of input as well. But you've got different people that are translating things differently. And you can actually see translational differences within a single chapter. You know that this group did this and this group did that because they have the same word that's completely translated differently and the context is the same. And so somewhere along the line, they said, okay, we're going to take this half of this chapter. You take this half and you can tell that it was done differently. Because after that part of the process is done, the next thing that's going to happen is it's going to go to a stylist. And the stylist is going to say, okay, you guys have written this, and I understand that, but now you need to tell me exactly what's being conveyed because I need to put this into a literary form that people are going to read and not be confused, right? Like normal English. Because these guys are just writing probably more a literal translation. And so the stylist comes in, and then you get the error checkers, and you get, you get all these different people that are doing things in a Bible translation, and it is a complicated, a very long, tedious process and it's very complicated. And so you can't begrudge people if their error if they truly meant to do well in the Bible but there are errors in it. You can begrudge people when they purposefully mistranslate the Bible. The New World Translation of the Bible does this. The New World Translation of the Bible is the Jehovah's Witnesses and it has purposeful manipulations of God's word. Keep that in mind as well. If you're going to use the New World Translation of the Bible to witness to Jehovah's Witnesses, because that's what they'll insist on, you need to understand where that came from and where it was manipulated so that you can tell them, I want you to know this, etc., etc. So it's just a big, complicated thing, but 
the point here is that we have one verse that he read. It was different in what he read than what I read. And then we had some things that were highlighted or, you know, capitalized and come to find out it's actually not intended to be that way. All right. So be careful when you're reading even versions of the Bible, much less commentaries. Think on things, read different versions of the Bible, ask the Lord above everything else. Ask the Lord, Lord, don't let my doctrine be wrong. Please lead me to the correct translation. Lead me to the correct rendering. And if you don't know, Lord, please lead me to somebody that can properly explain this. It's important. Doctrine actually matters. And when we have incorrect doctrine, we are the ones that will stand before the Lord saying, you know, I, I, I watched 40 hours of TV last week, but I spent 15 minutes in your word. He's going to say, where were your priorities? I'm not saying not to watch TV. I watch TV with Hedico every single night. But have your priorities set where the word is first and foremost in your day and in your life. Pray about it. Think about it. As it says all the way through the Bible, meditate on the word. Psalm 119, we start every class with it. Open my eyes to see wonderful things out of your word. This is what you want to do. If you have a hunger and thirst for it, God will reward you. Okay, um, let's go on. 317. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, go, go ahead. Sorry, we got questions. Your uh, commentary on Genesis. Yes. Back in 15, Lord, you went over that. I read that today. Okay. L-O-R-D, all of them capitals. Yes. Means different than the capital L. Absolutely. I mean, there was three different. Well, I'll different. show them because you, they probably can't hear what you're saying oh, now okay. that I know this. And so I'm going to show them what Burke is, Burke is saying that in Genesis, or it's commentary read from Genesis, yes. sermon that I did. But he's asking about Lord, or he's saying that this is what I said. So when you're reading the Bible, and I've, I've said this on other Bible studies, but I haven't done it in probably six months, so it's good to know. You have different uh, renderings of the word Lord in the Bible. And normally, if you have a decent Bible and you look at the beginning of it, they will have a preface. And in the preface, they will often tell you what they're doing, the mechanics of what's going on. Some will get more involved than others, but they will often tell you this. The word Lord in the Bible I'm talking about Old Testament, even New Testament, L-O-R-D. I know that's not a, we'll get rid of that because that's a small R. Okay, that's one word. This is another word, L-O-R-D. And then this is another word. They all say exactly the same thing. When you're reading it, it says Lord, Lord, and Lord. And so you don't really know what's going on unless you are trained to know before you read your Bible, what it is. And this is, you need to know, this is the word Adon, A-D, and I'm going from the Old Testament, Greek, uh, I'm sorry, Hebrew, Adon, okay? So Adon simply means mister or master, my mister. In other words, if it's my mister, it would have an I at the end. I is possessive. So Adoni, my Lord, okay? Everybody got that? Adon is just a regular person. If I was to say to, uh, uh, Ron here, I'd say, Adon, or if I wanted to ask you a question, Adoni, okay, my Lord, can I ask you a question? That would be that word, okay? So when you're reading your Bible and you see all small, you know it's a person speaking to another human. Then you've got L-O-R-D, this is one capital and three small letters. That is the word Adonai, all right? Adonai is always somebody speaking about or to the Lord, Jehovah, the Lord God, but it is not saying his name. So when Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6, I saw Adonai high and lifted up, it's this word here. I saw the Lord. That's how we would translate it, the Lord. But it's not saying his name. It's just simply saying, I saw the Lord. Or Lord, 
What are you going to do to um, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah? It may say, Abraham may say to the Lord, Adonai, what are you going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah? He's not calling him by his name. This replaces that, okay? It's a formal uh, use of the word, only speaking to the Lord God, but without saying his name. And then you have, of course, the Lord, which is yud Hey vav Hey, the name of Jehovah. There's no uh, vowels in the Hebrew, so it's consonants, okay? So, yud Hey vav Hey, that's the Lord, and it would be Jehovah. Some people will take a Bible, and they will only translate this as the divine name, okay? And that helps you. That helps you understand that this is the name of the Lord. But at times, you know, it, it gets a little hard to read that way. It, you know, there is a reason, though, why they chose to say Lord, Lord, and Lord it, when they translated the Old Testament instead of saying the divine name. Can anybody tell me what that reason is? They decided to do this. Why would they do this? In the Old Testament? In the Old Testament. Why would they, they choose to do this? going to offend Jews? By... No. No, because they could say Adonai when it's Adonai, and they just sure. put the uh, capitals, and the, the Hebrew text will have this in the Hebrew, okay, which is this, it would be Yud, uh, Hey, Vav, I'm doing this backwards, so, okay, Hey, that would be it in the Hebrew, that's touching and that's not touching. Okay, so, why would the translators choose to do this? Why would they do that? Because it's the New Testament we're referring to. What is Jesus called in the New Testament? It's called Lord, and they want to make sure that you know that the Lord of the Old Testament is the yeah, Lord of the New. And so you're being consistent with your theology by doing that. It's because in the New Testament, the word is kurios, okay, Lord, and it can mean Lord, Lord, Lord. Same, kurios can be a person, it can be God, whatever, you know, it can, depending on the context, it can be different things. But they want to make sure that you understand that when it's referring to the Lord in the Old Testament, and they cite in the book of Hebrews, the Lord, and then they're talking about Jesus, the Lord, you have now made a mental connection. And that's why there's nothing wrong with doing that. And when people say you're changing the word of God, no, they're not. Because as I said, you go to the preface. And if it's not in your preface, because the Bible isn't, you know, they don't have a lot of information. It's just the Bible that they sold you. If it's not there, they will have it on their website. This is what we have done. Here is why we have done that. And they will tell you in detail. That's not manipulating the word of God. When people say that, they don't know what they're talking about. And they're just trying to sound more holy than you. Don't listen to that type of thing. I'm going to take you, I always take people to a certain passage about the Lord, Lord, and Lord. So you can see all three of them in one passage and what's going on. Does anybody remember what passage? When the Lord said to the Lord. Well, that's not the one, but it's, uh, I, I want you to go, I'll say that it's the book that begins, what? Joshua. Uh, no, but it does begin with a J and it's right after Joshua. Anybody? Okay. And then it, anybody know what chapter I'm going to take you to? I'm going to take you to, it's right after chapter 5, but right before chapter 7, okay? We're going to go to Joshua, I'm, I'm sorry, Judges chapter 6. And what we'll do is we will go to verse 11 to make this simple on you, okay? If you have your Bible, turn there, and then you will see all three of these in one passage. Okay, it says, now the angel of the Lord, L-O-R-D, all capital, everybody there, you see that? That's this word right here. The angel, oh, 12. Uh, we're in verse 11 of uh, Judges chapter chapter 6. So oh. Judges chapter 6 and verse 11. Now the angel of the L-O-R-D, the angel of Jehovah, the Lord, came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, Joash <coughs> excuse me, the Abizarite, while he, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. 
And the angel of the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital, the angel of Jehovah appeared to him and said, the Lord, Jehovah, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, oh, my Lord, all small. He doesn't know he's speaking to the Lord. He has no idea. So it says all small, oh, my Lord. He thinks he's talking to Ron Barra, right? Or uh, Burke over there. My Lord, he thinks he's talking to just a guy. Oh, my Lord, if the Lord, Jehovah, all capitals, is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord, Jehovah, bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord, Jehovah, has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Then the Lord, it makes it absolutely clear that the angel of the Lord is the Lord. The Lord, Jehovah. The Lord turned to him, same being, it's not a different being. The Lord, Jehovah. Jehovah turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not, have I not sent you? So he, this is Gideon now, said to him, meaning the Lord, so he said to him, O Adonai, this middle one, O my Lord. He's not saying his name. He's being respectful and saying, O Adonai, acknowledging that he is God. He's no longer knowing that he's a human. He's knowing that he is the Lord. So he's made the change. He understands that this is the Lord. O Adonai, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord, Jehovah, it's one person having a conversation with one other person, and yet it is the Lord God. And Jehovah, the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from me here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. So there you go. You have all of that going on in one passage. And when he said, my Lord, it's actually Adonai, all right, because it's possessive. He says, oh, my Lord, the first time. Or wait, uh, where is it? Um, yes, in verse 13, Gideon said to him, my Lord, Adonai. And then the next time he refers to him, knowing that it's the Lord, he says, Adonai. He's gone from man to God in one thought because he now understands who he's talking to. And why would he know that? It's because he already knows the stories from the book of Genesis. This would have been taught in their, you know, the people would have known this, is that the same thing happened with who in Genesis chapter 18? Abraham. The Lord God walked up to Abraham, and it's very clear. It says Jehovah. All capitals in the English, but yod heh vav -Hey in the English. I'm sorry, in the Hebrew. So it, there is no doubt that the Lord had appeared to these people. He appeared to Joshua, it's a little less um, obvious until you take the context. It says that I am the commander of the Lord's army, okay? And so does that mean it's the Lord Jehovah or does that mean that it's a divine uh, uh, angelic being, right? Well, we know that it was the Lord Jehovah, how? Because the next thing he tells Joshua to do, take, take your shoes off. That only is one other time in the Bible, and that is when he, Moses was at the burning bush, and the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, appeared to Moses. And so we know that that is once again. And as a matter of fact, we're going to talk about that this week, and I'm glad you brought that up because that will be in this sermon on Sunday, and people, at least that watch the Bible studies, will have an idea of what's going on. Because 1 Samuel 17 is a marvel. It's a marvel of what God does with words. 
when you get done with that, I think you're really going to be pleased to see how beautiful that passage is. It, it really is an astonishing passage. But I'm just saying that because I've been looking at it for the past five weeks, hours a day, thinking about it. And, you know, I keep adding things in. And I finally today uh, finished it up and I put it on the website to be published on Sunday morning at 1015. But I also on Thursdays print off a copy for the doctor and Mabel and for my father and I put it in the mail. So I, I can't add any more in without jipping them. There may be, you know, corrections and, you know, I, I think backwards and I'll, I'll type things backwards, but there may be some corrections, but I won't be adding any more in. It's done. But I, I tell you the truth. I It's 30, I think 30 pages long, which is much longer than a normal sermon. And I kept, I was thinking today while reading it, I could have made this 50 pages long and still not had everything that this passage has in it. So this is going to be like almost like cliff notes for you. You're going to have to go back and you're going to say, okay, now I know what's going on and I can look at all the other passages that I know that fit into this from the Bible and you'll be able to, you know, like parts of Isaiah are so obviously in there, but I just didn't include them because it would have been 50 pages long. We'd be here till three o'clock in the afternoon. So oh, it, it, what a wonderful passage. I'm so glad that Sergio was willing to do this. You know, we needed a break from the Torah for a little while, and uh, Sergio needed something to do for a video, and we kept it secret right to, right to the last day. Well, you knew, because he went, uh, he's the only guy that knew, because he went to California, and so I told him, I said, you're going to miss the uh, the sermons, but uh, this is what we're doing. And uh, did you catch up on the first and second while, while you yeah, were gone? I, I, I kept secret, though. Okay, yeah, good. I, I didn't spill the beans. <laughs> well, there you go. And then one other person did know, and I had to tell him, is uh, Doug over in Ireland, because he had to have paintings ready for it. So those two people did know, but nobody else knew, and it was, a, it was a wonderful, because I didn't want to give away Sergio and Rhoda's thing, too. So, okay, we'll get back into here. But thank you for that, Bert, because that's, that's good information me, about every six months. Let me just add to that for a second. Okay. I'm looking at... Um, uh, the font that's used in various oh, yeah. translations and different publications. Okay, my NIV, they've got the L-O-R-D, the Yehovah. Right. But it's like, it's like, it, it's smaller. It's, it's small like, O-R-D, but it's capital yeah, O-R-D. That's to, right. Like, look at it. Whereas, it's a completely different font that they use. This, it's like, okay, Yehovah is L-O-R-D. There's no question that this is That's a right. change from the small L-O-R-D. And like, it, it's just, it, it's it's easy to see. It is easy but to see. But you know, this. Some like, Bibles, you like, just can't see it. Yeah, you know, uh, that's what right. What are you doing to me here? Like, but now there's one thing to understand about this, because the Jehovah's Witnesses, when you're witnessing to them, will try to pull one over on you. Because this is an example. In Isaiah chapter 9, it says that the Messiah would be uh, El Gabor, mighty God right? Okay. And that term is only used one more time in the whole Bible. In the next chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 10, El Gabor, mighty God, right? And it's very clearly identified as Lord. You can't come to any other conclusion. So if you say to them, well, the Messiah, who's a human being, is going to be El Gabor. And then it says here, El Gabor. And what they'll say is, well, it's capitalized here and it's not capitalized here because their Bible doesn't capitalize mighty God, when it's speaking of Jesus, okay? Well, then you have to know, and that's why I say you need to be trained in these things, is that there is no capitalization in the Hebrew. It's the same being that's being referred to in chapter 9 and 10. Only a fool would look at the two while translating the Bible and say, this is not the same person. Nobody, nobody would do that unless they purposely wanted to hide the deity of Jesus Christ. So be careful about how you approach Jehovah's Witnesses because they may get you confused because you don't understand the 
nuances of what's going on in the Bible. Anyway, we got to go on. We, we, we we've been going for hours on one verse, so we're in three seventeen. What I mean is this: the law introduced four hundred and thirty years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God, and thus do away with the promise. Okay, little different. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. So he is saying that what happened with Abraham is clearly a covenant. As we know, the, the pieces were separated and the Lord passed through them, etc. And when that covenant was cut with Abraham, does everybody remember how the Lord went first and then Abraham went through second? Remember that? Anybody? No. No, that's Abraham right. Abraham never went, went through. No, right. The it's Lord alone God. went through. Right. It was his covenant, and he is the one that will ensure that covenant is fulfilled. I was checking it's on you guys. tricky. Yeah. I'm glad that you caught that, though, and I think, did you catch that, too? Okay, good. So, uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to see if you guys were awake, and you were, that the Lord alone made that covenant. He alone passed through. Okay, now, I don't know if I'm going to talk about this here, so uh, I probably will, so I won't, won't get ahead of myself. Yes, I see right there. Okay, here we go. Paul now gives a further explanation of the logical thought process which he has already described, that of the promise preceding the law and which stands apart from and superior to the law. Let me erase this and hang on. I've got, let me get an eraser because I don't want to, I just want you to see what's going on. And as long as you can see this, hearing words is one thing, but seeing it, I'm, hang on, seeing it may help a little bit. Okay. So you have Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, the promise is made. Okay, that is here. And then the law came down here. All right, this is the time of the law. We'll just, we've got a gap between the two right now, and the law actually, uh, it's Exodus, but we'll just say Exodus 20 because that's the giving of the Ten Commandments. But, you know, it, it's in that area. Okay, so we've got the two things going on. Read again what I just said to you. Paul now gives a further explanation of the logical thought process, which he's already described, that of the promise preceding the law in which stands apart from and superior to the law. Paul is saying that this is greater than this, and it came before it, and this cannot annul this. Okay? Everybody see that? This cannot annul this. All right. He has shown that those who attempt to be justified by works of the law, right here, are under a curse. He said that in verse 10. That was last week or two weeks ago. That no one is justified by the law in the sight of God in verse 11. Because the law is not of faith, verse 12. Well, this is of faith. This is not of faith, okay? Verse 12, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Verse 13, those are things that he has said in verse 10, 11, 12, and 13 about this here, okay? So the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. That's verse 14. The blessings of Abraham are up here. This is the law. Okay, as the Gentiles had no law, this is to Abraham, this is only to Israel, okay? The Gentiles were never included in this, ever. Any Gentile that you know that is into this Hebrew Roots movement, Seventh-day Adventism, all that kind of stuff, they are condemning themselves by going under a law that they were never under before. Abraham is over here. Gentiles are grafted into the covenant of Abraham, not the law, okay? So this is to Israel only. As the Gentiles had no law, just as Abraham had no law. He was before the time of the law, all right? 
they had no law, then how could the law somehow add to this righteousness? God declared Abraham righteous by faith. The law came 430 years later, according to this verse. How could this add to that? It can't. It cannot in any way, shape, or form. That's what's going on here. Okay, so how could the law somehow add to their righteousness or anybody who was in Abraham who never was under the law? Okay, Christ had come, and so any who received him by faith would be just as Abraham because the promises were made to Abraham and those who issued from him, those who are in Christ. So the Gentiles who never had the law and who believe like it, believing Abraham are justified by the same faith. Okay, let me get my pen and make a mark here so I don't want to make a mistake later. All right, understanding all of this, Paul now says that the law, which was 430 years later, 430 years later from the time of Abraham, okay? The law came long, long after Abraham's death. He was never under the law. He had no part of the law. He was gone. He was buried. And then the law came many, many, many years later. It was never a part of his life, and it had no bearing at all on his declaration of righteousness. In fact, the law came after a full 215 years of him and his descendants living in the land of Canaan. So here we have the land of Canaan where Abraham was given the promise. They were in the land of Canaan for 215 years after this date. And it's very precise. Make sure that if you don't know this, you can go back and watch all of the Genesis sermons and we follow year by year exactly the time frame. The law was 250 years or, or it was 215 years for Abraham and his descendants living in Canaan under promise, okay? So, 215 years of his descendants living in Egypt. So, they're in Egypt now. First, they're in Canaan, then they're in Egypt, still before the giving of the law. Two, that comes out 215, and 215 comes out to what? Anybody? I know, that was complicated, but yes, it's 430, okay? So, the law came after a full 215 years of him and his descendants living in Canaan, and then another 215 years of his descendants living in Egypt. It was his grandson, Jacob, who went down to Egypt, and it was Jacob's great-great-grandson, Moses, who led the people out of Egypt and to Sinai, where the law was received. All of this had gone on before the law was ever introduced. Okay? All of it. During all of that intervening time, there was no law. There was only the promise and those declared righteous by faith. And yet the people were considered righteous as they lived by faith in the promises of God. Their standing before God was a part of the promise made to Abraham. And the law had no bearing on it at all. Further, the law, as Paul says, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ. That is, it should make the promise of no effect. This cannot affect this. This came first. It is the precedent set by God. God is doing this for a reason, but it cannot negate what happened here. Everybody got that? This is much later. It has no bearing at all on what happened to Abraham. If the Hebrew Roots, people, Hebrew Roots Movement people would simply watch this study, would think about it, and then read their Bible to see what Paul says is true, they would understand that they are condemning themselves. They're not being holy before God. They're shaming the cross of Jesus Christ because Christ came to fulfill this on our behalf. He came to take away the guilt of the law. The law was simply a mirror of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Remember, there was a law in the Garden of Eden. Don't do this thing. 
They broke it and sin entered the world. Now you've got 613 chances every day of your life to sin. Is that what you want? If you can't meet one commandment for 30 seconds in the Garden of Eden, how can you meet 613 for the rest of your life? You can't do it. This is the problem with these people that are introducing these heretical doctrines into the faith. It's because people are unschooled in theology and they hear something and they run with it. And it's very sad because these people really think that they're being super spiritual when in fact they're they're condemning themselves. Okay, let's see here. Um, Further, the law cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. Bible scholar Bengel, he's another scholar that you'll read on that commentary page that I was talking about earlier. His comments are usually very short, but they're very precise. He's a very good scholar. He's a German guy. A lot of people will will quote Bengel. Even though he doesn't say much, he says a lot with a few words. So uh, you get another guy on that page at times. He's not on all the pages, but sometimes he'll jump into a verse and he'll make a comment. His name is McLaren, and I can't even read it. He goes on and on and on, and it's not really an analysis. It's just flowery. It's almost like you're reading a sermon. I can't deal with that. So, I mean, he can have 50 pages on a single verse, and it doesn't really, it doesn't do anything. It's like sitting and listening to a sermon on Sunday. So, you know, there's no point in it. But I I don't dismiss that what he's doing is good. I'm just saying that, uh, what were you laughing about? Because you were just saying that some guy who puts everyone to sleep on the internet is like a sermon. Well, I'm not talking about my sermons where we do an analysis. I'm talking about people that talk about things and don't come to any... Point. Okay, they okay. Just, yeah, 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 yeah. It was a misunderstanding. But, yeah, that's okay. But I'm sure that I bore a lot of people with my sermons. If you don't like details, you're not going to like these sermons. I, if you don't watch them and you don't like detail, don't start watching them. I can tell you that because I like the details. I don't care about all of the, you're going to be happy and prosperous and all. That doesn't interest me at all. And I've always said that if you know your Bible, you don't need a preacher to tell you your life is going to be okay. The Bible will tell you that all by yourself. That's why we go line by line is because you can start to process and figure out my life is going to be okay. At the end of every sermon, I tie them in with the New Testament and you say, oh, I get it. And Christ is taking care of all those problems. So why do you need somebody to tell you that, you know, whatever. Anyway, um, but it's just a different approach. And I'm not trying to slam people that do, you know, uh, life application sermons. It's just a different approach. Um, okay, so uh, where was I? Um uh, Egypt, yeah. Okay, the scholar Bengel notes the greatness of the interval increases the authority of the promise. Now think of that. If this interval was only five years, you could say, well, the law came right afterward, just like circumcision came 25 years or so after uh, the promise was Genesis 15:6, and then in chapter 17, in comes circumcision. And so you can say, well, they're, they're connected, right? They're really close. But the longer the interval the more bearing it has on the fact that this stands alone. If it had been 100 years, you could still say, I mean, America's what, 200 and, I don't know, how old are we now? 230-ish years old, okay? So we could look back and we could say, well, the Civil War was half of our history ago, and so we still have racial problems or whatever. You could make that connection, although I don't know who would in today's world. But um, <laughs> that was a joke, yes. Um, but, <laughs> but you see how the, the longer the interval, the more important this is. That's why I like Bengal is because he gives these really thought-provoking things with just a couple of words. Okay, so um, <laughs> he says, the greatness of the interval increases the authority of the promise. This is what Paul alluded to in verse 15 
when using the example of a covenant between mere men. As this is applicable in such a covenant, how much more so is it when dealing with the promises of God? Okay, now remember in verse 15, I said that if uh, Ron and I were to make a covenant right now, I can't annul it, I can't add to it or change it, and he can't do it either unless we both agree, right? The covenant is made. I can't just arbitrarily, we make an agreement, you're going to do this and I'm going to uh, pay you that much, or you're going to do this and I'm going to you know, uh, uh, fly you to uh, Tahiti for three weeks. Whatever the agreement is, I can't amend it and still have the agreement stand. If I say, well, I'm not going to send you to Tahiti, it's too far, I'm going to send you to Jamaica, that I'm sorry, you didn't agree to that. The covenant is made and it has to be agreed upon by both parties. One party cannot do anything to it. That, If that's the case with human covenants, how much more with God, who himself passed through the pieces of the animal. Okay, so Paul is trying to wake the Galatians up to the fact that they are as Abraham was, living by promise and not by law. They were never under the law of Moses. The law of Moses has no bearing on any group of people on this planet except who? That's right, Israel. That's it, the Jewish people. This has nothing to do with anybody. And yet, the Galatians are here trying to say we need to do these things because these people who have the law are telling us we need to do it. And Paul is saying, no, they are a later insert for a theological reason that God had to get out of the way for us to understand the enormity of what God did in Christ, okay? This is all that is, and he chose one, per, one group of people to do it, and nobody else is under this law. Nobody, except people that want to voluntarily go under it for whatever crazy reason we would want to do that, right? Okay, it, it, here's a really good example of how we could look at this. We live where? You and I, where are we? We are in the, well, bigger. We, United, States. United States of America, okay? We have what is called, begins with F, ends with freedoms, anybody? Freedom. Freedoms, okay. Russia used to be, and it still is, but it's just kind of in hiding right now. Russia is a communist country. Remember East Berlin? They had people following people everywhere, marking everything down. People were scared all the time. When the walls came down, nobody went from the west to the east. Nobody. The people flooded from the east to the west. Remember that? I remember watching it. The walls are coming down and people were just jubilant coming across to be a part of freedom. Why would anybody want to go under communism? But we got people in this world that are doing that right now. They're all over America causing trouble, and they want us to be under that. They think that is the answer, okay? And the funny thing is many of them are very, very rich children. They're children of parents that have millions of dollars, and yet they're out there. They just arrested one. She's at a school $50,000 a year to pay for her education. Her parents are ultra-rich, and she's out there doing these things, and they arrested her, and now she's got a federal crime behind her, okay? But this is what people are doing, and this is what the Galatians are doing. That's a perfect parallel to that. They arrested eight of them. Well, yeah, eight of them. I'm just saying this was just one that I read about, right? Okay, but you're right. They're arresting these people. They want to go under a law that we don't even have in this nation. We have freedoms. You can do this and you can do this. You go over to Russia, you're not going to be able to buy a gun. There's absolutely no way on this planet. I've been in a country where if you have a bullet on your possession, you can get hanged. Okay, a bullet. There are no guns. There are no bullets in Malaysia. If you walk in with a joint, a single joint, you will get hanged. There is one appeal to the king after you are convicted, and you're always convicted guilty, 
and the king says no, and then they hang you. Well, I was there, they probably hanged 50 people. And it's stamped right on your passport when you go in there, in big red letters. Death to drug trafficking. And drug trafficking means anybody with any drugs at all. And they hang them. I saw Australians hanged. I think there was an American that was hanged before I was there. They don't care. This is their country. They have a right to do that. But who would want to live under that? The only reason why I could stay in that country is because I had diplomatic privileges. I had a black passport. I was under the embassy of the United States of America. They couldn't do anything to me. They couldn't ask me any question when I walked through. They stamped my passport and let me go. They couldn't look at my bags, nothing. If I got arrested for something, the only thing they could do is say, we're deporting you. That is it. Otherwise, I wouldn't want to live in that country. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, th there you go. But this is what people want. They want death. They want to be under this condemnation. They got to be crazy. Okay, you got the analogy. All right. Um, I'm glad you said that because I would have kept talking and then we got to get this class done. Um, okay, so uh, let's see here. Um, where was I? Okay, I'm going to start again at the top of this paragraph. This is what Paul alluded to in verse 15, which I just started telling you about when using the example of a covenant between mere men. As this is applicable in such a covenant, how much more so is it when dealing with the promises of God? Paul is trying to wake the Galatians up to the fact that they are as Abraham was living by promise and not by law. The purpose of the law has nothing to do with the declaration of righteousness. Nothing. You cannot be declared righteous by the law except under one instance, and that is by calling on Jesus who fulfilled the law. Because we can't do it. We cannot be declared righteous. We can only be condemned by the law. Jesus fulfilled the law, and through his imputation of his righteousness to us, that is possible, but no other way. Okay. In fact, as Paul will continue to show, the law stands contrary, contrary to such a declaration. There is no way that we can be declared righteous by the law. These people that want to go and live in Russia or in Malaysia are condemning themselves. The people that want to live under the law are condemning themselves. Okay. As a final note, the duration of time that Paul speaks of here, that of 430 years is an exact figure of time. It is exact. It is very precise. It was precisely 430 years from the promise to the exodus from Egypt. It is too much information to include in this commentary. Believe me, it took us many sermons to go through, but it is exactly as described above. 215 years in Canaan to the year and 215 years in Egypt to the year. The biblical account shows this exactingly, and there is no contradiction in it at all. I understand that there are translations that say it was 430 years from the time that the children were in Egypt, and they have mistranslated that. The King James Version wisely put a comma. It says, the children of Israel, comma, that dwelt in Egypt, comma. So it offsets it, so it can mean one of two things. They probably weren't sure which is correct, and so they just put a couple of commas and offset them, and so they got that right. Some translations actually get it right, okay? Some of them completely blow it, but it was 215, 215, 430 total, okay? If you don't understand it, start with Genesis 1-1 and get all the way through the book of Genesis, and you'll see that and a lot of other fun stuff as well. Okay, the biblical account shows this is exactingly so, and there is no contradiction in what Paul says here. Not to the day. All right, life application. The law came after the promise. Gentiles were never considered under the law, ever, ever, ever. And for the Jews, the law was fulfilled in Christ. Unfortunately, they rejected him. 
The Jews that accepted Jesus are a part of the church, the new covenant. Those that didn't are still under the old covenant. They have been judged for the past 2,000 years, all pictured by the wilderness wanderings, the 40 years in the wilderness of the past number of sermons. Okay, Moses dies outside of the law or outside of the promise, showing that the law cannot have any part of the inheritance. All the typology is there. Israel has seven more years of the law to live under. Okay, and that means an actual time of law, not not the time where they're still under punishment, not the time right now, but there's a time when the peace treaty will be made, a temple will be agreed upon, and that seven-year time frame will begin at that point. And from there, they will go through seven years of hell on earth, all because they have failed to come to the one who fulfilled the law. It's a sad story, but that's why we pray for Israel every day is because we want them to be saved and we want them to not have to go through that. We want to evangelize the Jews. We want to hopefully, you know, send money to uh, one for Israel if you, you know, like their music and they have that going in Israel all the time. And maybe somebody will be driving down the road and the static on all the other stations, you know, how God works and all of a sudden they turn to that and they hear something good, right? We don't know. So you just want to Pray for Israel, pray for their eyes to be open because they are going to go through a bad time on earth. And just so everybody here knows this, in case you're wondering, I know you know I know this, and I know you know that I know that you know this, but I, I, I hope what I said just made sense. The Bible teaches a pre-tribulation rapture. We do not have to go through what Israel is going to go through. It does not teach a mid-tribulation rapture. I'm sorry if you believe that. I can show you the information, but if you just want to be adamant, you will never believe it, even though it's in black and white. It is very clear and precise. Pre-tribulation rapture. Okay, so the Gentiles were never considered under the law, and for the Jews, the law was fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, to insert, like these guys, or to reinsert, like the Jews, to insert or reinsert the law is to set aside the promises of God. You are setting aside what God has done. And you are saying, I can do better than Jesus did. That is, that is what you are doing when you go under the law. Do not pursue such a path. Have faith in God and what he has done in Christ for your justification. Hold fast to Christ. Yes. Mediator. Where is that? Uh, Timothy says that there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. Right. It speaks of mediation in the book of Hebrews as right. well. And then the advocate is from 1 John. Right. Okay. And what's amazing about that is with the covenant. It's a covenant as you do with you and Ron. It's an agreement. That's right. It's a legal agreement. That's it's right. Like, okay, you can't twist or bend this thing. Yet, even though we believe in Christ, you still are mediator. He's our mediator. It's like... That, going into all this legal thinking in my head, it's like, you know, this is just amazing. Yeah, it, it is amazing because without his mediation, we, you know, he, not, we need him. No. And advocate is like a mediator. It's good you brought that up. A mediator is one who uh, works between two parties to mm -hmm. come to an agreement. Yeah. An advocate stands by your side and says, I am defending this person. Right. He is the one that is saying, I have done this on his behalf and therefore I present him to you unsullied. Perfect. And without, that is what a advocate does. He is our advocate. A mediator is one that says, there is a problem between him and him, and I'm going to get this worked out between the two of them. He and is our mediator. How they work it out yeah. is crazy. Have you ever been through mediation? Oh, it's absolutely. Like, okay, first, I'm your best friend ever. Let's just talk about this for a bit. Then I'm going to go talk to the other guy, and we're going to talk. Then I'm going to come back and go, like, you know, you're a bit of an idiot in this whole thing. And like, they'll go back and say the same thing. So it's basically, you, you, you get put through the ringer. But we would never call God an idiot, and Jesus would never call his father an idiot, but you're right. Well, that's true, but yeah. that's what, but, but, it, but it's like, basically, it's like, you're it's working out. that are never going to get together. 
and bringing them together. By finesse. That's right. <laughs> it's like That's exactly right. <laughs> well, crazy. and Christ is. He is the wisdom of God. So, all right, 318. All right, sorry. Yeah. No, that's all right. Be carried away here. Um, anyhow, four, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Okay, this is a little different. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Yours says grace through. This one says doesn't mention grace, but it says by promise rather than through promise. Okay, so 3.18. Paul sums up this paragraph with an obvious conclusion of the thoughts he has thus far presented. How can one read these words and deny the evident nature of what they state? And yet, for 2,000 years, people have been caught up in the legalistic practice of reinserting, or of Gentiles simply inserting, the law into their practicing theology. Taken at face value, it is clear that this approach is utter folly. Let me read it again so you can think about it while I'm giving you the commentary. It says, for if the inheritance, the inheritance, heaven, all right, we'll just say heaven. If the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, which came 430 years before the law, but God gave it to Abraham as a promise. Everybody see that? And he just went and defended why the law can't override the promise and so if it was given by a promise then the law can have no part in it everybody see that okay so he begins with for if the inheritance is of the law it is no longer of promise the promise was given to abraham without any strings attached to it remember circumcision came afterward two chapters and 20 some years later i don't know the exact time frame i don't remember but it's quite a while afterward by that time ishmael had been born he was 13 years old so it was quite a bit of time okay a promise was made genesis 15 6 abraham believed and abraham was declared righteous in the covenant made at mount sinai however there was an agreement between both parties before the covenant was made. It was, in essence, a contract requiring performance. If either party failed to keep the contract, there would be penalties associated with it. Now, before I go on, this two con the two people that are making this agreement are the Lord and Israel. Will the Lord ever violate his part of the contract? No. no. But we know that the contract was violated, and not just once, but billions of times. Almost immediately after the contract was made, the people violated it. Moses is up getting the, the uh, tablets, he's getting instruction, and he comes down and the people have made, that's right, the golden calf, and they're out there partying and dancing and having all kinds of fun. And all the way through the Old Testament from that time on, there is nothing but disobedience all the way through. Somebody comes back, a good king comes, and the people turn back to the Lord, and then as soon as he's gone, they fall away again. They never, ever perform as they should throughout the entire Old Testament, ever. And even if they did, the first violation violated it. But the Lord never broke his side of the covenant. And this is something for replacement, excuse me, replacement theologians to consider, is that the Lord will still keep that covenant because it's still binding on Israel until they come out of that covenant, which they never have. So everybody needs to understand that if somebody says the church has replaced Israel, you just say, you don't know what you're talking about. Go watch Leviticus 26 sermons at the Superior Word, and you will find out why. Okay, that's all you need to tell them. You don't need to get into a long theological argument with them. They have no idea what they're talking about. The Lord will never, ever violate the law of Moses 
He will never do that, and that law must be fulfilled before it is annulled. Now, it is annulled in Christ, but it's only annulled in Christ for those who have come to Christ. Has Israel as a nation come to Christ? There you go. Answer to you. Such was not the case with Abraham. There was nothing to fulfill. There was nothing. The Lord passed through. He made the promise. Abraham simply believed, and there was nothing to fulfill. There was simply a declaration of righteousness. If the Lord, and this will have to be our last verse here, if the Lord later added the law into what was promised, then it is no longer of promise, according to Paul. That's what he says. It was no longer of promise. The promise would not actually be a promise, and the words of God to Abraham would have been deceitful. If he says that this is how you're justified, and your, your descendants will be justified by you by believing and then he adds this in and says, this is how you're justified now. It means that God has changed. What is it? Hebrews uh, 13, verse 8. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay. God doesn't change. I, the Lord your God, do not change. Malachi 3, 6. Thank you. Okay. I didn't know the verse, but I got the... Uh, okay. Anyway, so the Lord would have been deceitful, and the addition of the law would have then been manipulative. God would have been manipulating his people. However, neither is the case. Instead, God gave it to Abraham by promise. The law was inserted for a, as I said earlier, a theological reason to teach us certain things. Abraham was given a promise which could in no way, in no way be affected by the later coming of the law. In this verse, the nouns law and promise have no article. They are being considered in their characteristic principles which were not only diverse, but contrary. That's the pulpit commentary's comment on that. Further, the verb for gave is in, in the Greek is in the perfect tense. It's done. Paul is showing that it was and it forever is an enduring promise. It stands. God gave, gave it to Abraham as a promise. The matter is settled. Along with that, the placing of God is in the emphatic position. But Abraham, through a promise, has granted it God. God did the work. Nobody else. Okay? And it is inserted there. I had to insert it so you'd understand it. The stress would be like saying, but no less than God himself has given the promise to Abraham. God did it. God went through the pieces. Abraham didn't have to do anything but believe, and he received the declaration of righteousness. And that is what we all have, and we talk about it every week at the end of the sermon even if the sermon is complicated, well, I'll say this. If you don't know your Bible really well, Sunday is not going to make much sense to you. But you have it in printed form, and you can go back and look at all the references I give you. It's just, there's just a lot of information in 1 Samuel 17. David killing Goliath. What a marvelous picture of what God has done in redemptive history. But you've got to know literally from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through Revelation chapter 11, I think I cite in all kinds of stuff in between the two of them. You've got to know all of it, okay? But as I said, I left out a lot of information, but it is, it is really wonderful what God is showing us in this particular passage. All right, uh, let's see here. Um, as it is no less than God who gave the promise, oh good, just on time too, and it is a forever and enduring promise then the contradictory idea of having the law later become a part of what is needed to receive the messianic blessings is utterly ridiculous. Rather, the Galatians received the promise by faith and only by faith. For them to insert the law would nullify the words of promise. 
That is exactly what's happening in Paul is being so precise with his words to ensure that they don't do this thing. And because people do not read their Bible, they go to a church and they hear something and they are left in a sea of bad doctrine. And they're doing exactly what Paul warns against. And it is all over the world today. And it is growing by leaps and bounds. Why? Mainly because Israel's back in the land. Mainly because these people that are coming out of Judaism and into the law are the same people that went up to Galatia in the first place. They don't want to give up on the law, and so they tell the Gentiles, you have to do what we've been doing for the past 2,000 years. And they are sealing their own fate by that. It's, it's a very sad thing. But it happened even before Israel was established. Like I said, the, the Seventh-day Adventists, oh, you've got to observe the Sabbath. That's the chief of God's laws and blah, blah, blah. When in fact, it's the only one that's not even referred to in the New Testament, except in a diminishing way. But once again, you've got to know your scripture in order to stay away from that kind of stuff. All right. Rather, the Galatians received the promise by faith and only by faith for them to, re to insert the law would nullify the words of promise, life application, and we are done. Understanding right theology is hard work, but to shun it will inevitably lead one down a highway to heresy. Meditate on scripture, contemplate the grace of Jesus Christ above all else, and do not let the next passing fad or smooth-talking preacher lead you away from what is sound. That is what I recommend to you today. Hold fast. You know what? The word, the Bible ends with the word grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. How, thank you. How on earth can anybody say all the way from the coming of Christ all the way to the last word of, or last verse of the book of Revelation? It's all about grace. And then they just dismiss that and they say, I've got to, I've got to do these things. It. Yeah, I've got to work for it. And it's the, it's the, constant problem with humanity is that we just cannot trust God. We can't take him at face value and we have to do something in order to please him. And it's the doing that doesn't please him. It's the faith that makes him happy. When you say, I believe God, I know he's here and yet you can't see him. Guess what? That's, that's an act of faith. And when you say, believe correctly that God sent his son into the world and I'm coming to God through Jesus Christ, our mediator, our advocate, that is where real blessing comes from from god okay we got to pray and get out of here heavenly father thank you so much for the chance to be in this word and to share in it and to uh, uh revel in it and to understand the grace which was bestowed upon first the people of israel and then that message was carried out into the gentiles and it's been passed along for thousands of years now and we're coming to the end of that time we don't know when it's going to be but we hope it's soon but in the meantime, give us the wisdom to continue to pursue your word, to think on it, to contemplate it, to cherish it in our hearts, and to always love you above all else, and to thank you for the grace that came through the giving of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I should have kept quiet. Mediator is mentioned in the next two verses. Oh, yeah. That yeah that's right. God, but God is one. Okay, break. All right.